Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith with the World Business Academy, and I'll be your host today for a program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society, featuring World Business Academy President Ronaldo Brutico. Uh, as back, I'm sorry, as way of background, I'm a member of the Board of Directors of the World Business Academy and a Vice President and Wealth Advisor with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering three major topics along with a lightning round. As we always will include questions and comments from you, our audience, we already have several questions in the queue. So if you'd like to place a question, please dial into us at area code 347-989-8946. On today's topics, we will be covering first one, why healthcare reform is necessary to make U.S. manufacturers competitive internationally and how the success or failure of the reform effort will impact your personal finances for now and probably for the rest of your life. Our second topic is why the United States is at a turning point that requires the president to become a bold leader and for informed citizens to become engaged patriots. And three, how can you find a way to bring your body and soul to work while business leaders and consumers begin to make business a tool for social transformation? After the second segment above, we'll do our regular lightning round, which is a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes, with particular emphasis this week on oil prices, ways to, I'm sorry, ways existing commodity trends and their implications can benefit your wallet, and ways you can profit from the upcoming inflation and avoid its pitfalls using gold, commodity, and tracking indexes and the like. Um, with that, I'm going to turn this over to Ronaldo. Um, and uh, cue him in here. I'm right here, Howard. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Okay. Great. Also, why don't you take it away? And Thanks so much, Howard. I really appreciate the introduction, and thank you for hosting the call this month. Um, I, uh, I just wanted to give people a, a real brief kind of a five-minute overview uh, and then launch into our three topics, and I will keep it to five minutes or less. Uh, basically, uh, I'm really pleased, uh, as many of you on this call know and from prior conversations and you've had either read our literature at the Academy, we, have, we were the first significant economic forecaster that predicted a number of the major turns the economy's taken in the last two years, and one of them we predicted was that the unemployment rate would start to fall in January, at the worst case, February, and that it would continue to drop over time, and we'll do so from here till the November elections. So those people who are um, Democrats, let's say, who are afraid that the unemployment will be too high when the election comes around, they'll be pleased to know it's going to be at least a point or two lower than it is now. Republicans will be concerned about it, I guess, because I think they, they're probably preferring unemployment, so they got a better off-year election. And independents will be overjoyed because the economy's healing. So what does all that mean? Well, you're going to see continuing good uh, unemployment numbers from this point forward. Uh, I don't see anything that will turn them down other than a complete, you know, something cataclysmic like a, you know, a terrible attack on our shores or something. And um, it's, it's quite clear that not only are corporate profits, which started to recover in the fourth quarter of last year, but individual people are going back to work in greater numbers. Hiring is, is going up. And uh, although there'll be little blips on the radar, for example, in the month of February, the, the blizzard caused a statistical the blizzard back east caused in the Midwest caused a statistical change in the unemployment numbers because technically, when somebody's not at work because of the blizzard, they went into the unemployment number. But those are little minor blips on the radar screen. The overall trend is as the academy has projected, 
And that means that the economy is rising. Now, the good news is, since everyone listening to this call now knows that, there's an opportunity for you to do well financially for yourself and your family. If you didn't know that, you wouldn't be sure what to do. You wouldn't know, should I be hiding my money under the mattress? Should I be buying stocks in the market? Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? Because you wouldn't know what was coming next. But now, knowledge is power. You're armed with it. And given that you've been armed with that power, I hope you'll use it. And I'm looking forward to questions from people about the general scope of the recovery. Um, originally, about, I guess, nine, ten months ago, we, we projected that in 2010, we saw that there would be about a 2 to 3% increase in GNP. With all due respect to my friend Hazel, because I do agree with Hazel Henderson that GNP is not a great, not the best indicator of economic health. It is one that we use commonly. And uh, I think that 2 to 3% uh, prediction that we made for this year, 2010, and I must say we were one of probably maybe only 2 or 3% of all the economists in the country that made that prediction, I think that's going to turn out to be conservative. I'm now looking at something in the 3 to 4% range for 2004, certainly 25 to 3, let's call it that. And um, that's, pretty good. that's exciting because it means it's a slow, steady, thoughtful climb out. I'm also seeing um, changes in the international scene, which are very encouraging. I'm seeing um, Germany is going to step in, whether we do or not, and start to do financial regulation of derivatives, which is desperately needed. So there's lots of really positive things in the horizon. There's a few negatives, and I can talk about those also. But basically, the overall situation between here and the November elections is going to continue to get more and more positive. And um, we'll talk some more in this call about what the implications are for health care and President Obama and the like. So that was sort of my overview. Howard, is there anything in particular that you think I should touch on that I haven't before we go to the first topic? No, I think we'll move to the next topic in a moment. But let me just remind people who've just called in that if you do want to place a question, uh, you should call in on the phone line, which again is area code 347 989-8946 and stay on the line press the number one we'll see your question pop up on the queue and at the appropriate time we'll open up the lines for you to ask your question um, again our first topic Ronaldo is why is healthcare reform necessary to make the US uh, manufacturers competitive internationally and how this success or failure of the reform effort will impact uh, individuals personal finances for now and probably for the rest of our lives this was obviously uh, page one headlines this morning in today's news, Democrats declaring they're going to go ahead and accomplish something. We don't know what yet. Um, so again, let's. Uh, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, first of all, I think uh, I think the humor of all this, and I mean, I, I hate to, you know, if you come, if you don't laugh, you cry. What's humorous about this is the Democrats have no choice. They absolutely have to pass health care. What are what are they going to do? Say that they spend over a year frittered away debated every conceivable topic, looked at it from every direction, and couldn't decide what to do when we know that at least 30 million people or more are uninsured. So that's just a moral issue. We know for a fact as many as 275,000 people will die prematurely over the next 10 years if we don't do something. We know the average family's health care costs will nearly double by 2020. That's only 10 years away, from 13000 to $24,000 a year. And health care is already unaffordable. How can the average person spend another $11,000 a year if they have health care coverage? And as we know, every day more and more people fall off the health care rolls because they can't afford insurance, or they lose their job, and when they go to their new job, the employer can't supply it. So health care reform is absolutely critical to every single American for, for all the, the obvious reasons. And remember, this is the only country, 
United States of America, of the 27 industrialized nations that doesn't have health care of some, of some type. It's quite remarkable, actually. Now, um, the economic issues, though, which are far more important at the aggregate, frankly, than they are even at the personal level. I mean, I'm, I feel terrible for people who cannot get health care, and I actually have members of my family in that crisis and that dilemma right now, so I, I'm acutely aware of the issues. But more, even more important, one could argue, than, than the individual crisis that strikes 30 million Americans who are uninsured and all those will fall off the rolls every day from here on out till we get reform, and all the money that individuals are paying into health care as, as here in California. Anthem Blue Cross is trying to raise premiums this year alone 39%. That's on rate increases for the last five years that have been more than double, in some cases triple, the rate of inflation. So we know that people are hurting. The middle class is being driven down out of the middle class because they can't afford these costs. But I'd like to just focus for a second on the aggregate problem of American manufacturing. People wonder why American products are not competitive on the world market. And one of the reasons is health care. In fact, probably the biggest reason. Because we are the only country that forces our automobile manufacturers and our tractor manufacturers and our machine tool manufacturers and every other type of manufacturing in the country. We require that company to bear the burden of the broken healthcare system we have, which means that the cost of that broken system has to be put into every car they sell. And literally, it costs more for healthcare and worker benefits in every GM car than the steel. It's, it's gotten to the point where it's insane. I've so, heard recently, Ronaldo, for example, that uh, Starbucks actually spends more on health care for its employees, including their part-time employees, than the, coffee. the actual coffee product that it buys. It's absolutely correct, Howard. And by the way, I'm glad you brought that up because people, I, when I use this example of manufacturing, I do it because people are sensitive to jobs being shipped overseas. Why, folks, do you think they're going overseas? They're going overseas because they have health care there, and when they don't have to build that into the price of the vehicle, they can build something cheaper there and send it back here for us to consume. So it's a fundamental shift in our manufacturing policy has to be that we want to give an equal playing field to American manufacturers so we can create more jobs in the United States. But now go to coffee, and I'm really grateful you brought that up, Howard, because that demonstrates it's not just a manufacturing issue. Starbucks is a retail chain. And I can go to I can go to clothing, as many of you know on this call. I'm on the board of directors and the audit committee of the men's warehouse and the governance committee of the men's warehouse, and we deal with this issue every day. How are we going to provide money enough money to our employees with the cost of our health care policy? Well, what trade-offs do we have to make? Can we continue to, put, to deposit as much in their 401ks and the retirement programs if their health care bills are going up and up? And so it's it's it, it, and, and we're a, we're a, you know we have a thousand stores all over America, which is impacting every one of our employees because it impacts us. And at the same time, we're dealing with the fact that we know we could be doing a better job delivering high-quality merchandise to our customers for a great price if we weren't stuck with this burden. So every single company in America, and particularly small business, I want to put small business getting hurt worst of all. Why? Because typically small business cannot afford health care insurance. They just can't afford it. So their employees tend to be the ones who go uninsured. And as a result, those employees, the first chance they get, have to jump out of a small business environment to a bigger company. So our best employees in small business leave us to go to places where they can get health care. One more point, and I'm done. Every single person, from a competitive point of view, you have to look at this. Every single person who cannot get health care insurance is somebody who is stuck in a job they hate 
if they think, oh my goodness, I'd like to leave and go to someplace where I could be more efficient than the company could, but if I do, I lose my benefits. So because healthcare is not portable, because we have no portability insurance programs, we are stuck with people in dead-end jobs that they can't stand, being less productive than they would otherwise be, which itself is an enormous drain. People don't ever forget what a drain that is on the economy. Two ways. It's a direct financial drain. And as we're going to talk about in our third segment, based on uh, Will Murray's book, uh, which we're going to be talking about later in this, in this hour, Save the World and Still Be Home for Dinner, he points out the, the, the human consequences, not just the economic consequences, of people who are not in love with what they do. I'm just talking at this point in time, however, about how economically destructive that is. Well, Ronaldo, and, let's go back for a second because everybody may not be familiar with how healthcare is funded in the rest of the industrialized world. I mean, somebody's paying for it and somebody's doing it. How is it that England or France or Germany are providing healthcare uh, and their companies are more profitable than ours? What, and by the way, on it, yeah, and then on independent, totally independent studies done constantly. One comes out almost every three or four months by world governments, by the UN, by large American corporations, foreign corporations. They consistently rank American health care as by double the cost, total cost, of the second most expensive health care system in the world. And we rank around number 20-something in how good our health care is, measured by longevity and a bunch of other statistics. So how can the French, who are usually ranked up in the top five, the Germans in the top five, how can they provide health care and not burden their economic sector and make it a rise for them? What they do is they build the cost of health care into the social fabric. So the taxing system that brings you police departments and fire departments in Germany also brings you health care. Interesting concept. In other words, there are some things that the government has to tax for. Do you want to have a fire at your house? And uh, when you go to call the fire department, they go, oh, sorry, we're a private company. We don't go to, you haven't paid the premium on your building today. That's what health care is about. And, 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 of course, as many people know, the salaries that healthcare companies pay are absolutely egregious. They, healthcare companies are constantly bending the laws, constantly using the money that we pay them to then go out and hire lobbyists to give them more freedom to get more people off the rolls. So the, the way these other countries do it is they say, you know, some things, library, fire, police protection, military, and healthcare. Now, this is every industrialized country in the world says this. These have to be embedded in the social fabric of the taxing system. So their taxes, when they collect their taxes, are allocated to those things which we know people need and you can't allow the private sector to pr provide without either tremendous regulation or, or without some adverse consequence economically. So that's well, how the ask, other countries do it. Let me ask this question, Raleigh. I mean, maybe this is almost too obvious. Given the fact that this is impacting every phase of business, everybody's individual lives. Why is there such resistance in Congress to health care reform? Well, I'll tell you, I would love to do a show, maybe next, next month, Howard. I'd love to do a show just on what's going on with the so-called news media in America. Because this is a classic example. And for those people who did not hear it yesterday, and then you'll see how this ties together, uh, Congressman Patrick Kennedy, who's announced he will not run for re-election, on the floor of the House yesterday, got up and basically was ranting. But it was a really good point he was ranting about. He said, here we are, consumed in, by 24-hour news cycles, talking about former Congressman Massa, who's not even a congressman anymore, consumed by this story which is barely a, a, a tad above pure gossip, 
and 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 clearly is the story that that is not a story of ill it's a story of tragedy this man is a tragic figure but the story is eclipsed so much that the debate on afghanistan which affects the national treasury of the united states and the lives of our men and women overseas in the military had no press attending it because they were busy chasing down Mafia stories. And what Kennedy said was, we've got to get the media to do their job. Because what the media is doing is they're trying to create artificial controversies, and they're trying to sell newspapers at the cost of providing an informed citizenry, an informed electorate. And as I like to say to people, there's only one industry in the world, in the United States, that was protected by the U.S. Constitution. It's the news industry. Because it was perceived, as it says in the Constitution, the, it is essential to the, the existence of a free people that we have a free and vigorous press. A press means getting the news out. So why are people? Why is it so tough in Congress? Because I think I think the president and, and basically spent a lot of his first year capital in a way that wasn't productive. He 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 tried harder for bipartisanship than he tried to get the result. I think he's now learned that. Uh, for many of you who've heard me give speeches for the last 30 years, uh, have heard me so many times end my speech with the question, if not us, who? If not now, when? And that's what the president has adopted as his rallying cry to get reform finally through the Congress, hopefully by March 18th. Uh, I want to make one comment very quickly, by the way. Just yesterday, um, a, a great little email came up from David Plouffe, which has four attachments to it. And anybody who wants to will be able to get this off the Academy website in a few days, so you can click right on it. And what the attachments are, there's a one-page document which says, what will health reform mean for you? And it breaks it down into, I have insurance through my work, what does it mean for me? I own a small business, what does it mean for me? I have Medicare, what does it mean for me? I do not have insurance, what does it mean for me? I buy my own insurance, what does it mean for me? There's also another attachment to that same email of the cost of inaction, which basically references some of the things we've already talked about on this call. And the third document, which is also a one-pager, says, what is the truth about health reform? Well, the truth right now about health care reform is that, the, is that the, the lobbyists for an extraordinarily powerful entrenched industry, the health care industry, primarily the health insurance companies, have, I believe this year alone, meaning the last, uh, in the last 14 months, spent over $600 million trying to get the story out, which is a false story. And the false story is that somehow this reform is going to be bad for you. Somehow you'll lose control of your, of your physician, which you won't. I mean, it's, it's just it, it, unbelievable. I mean, and scatological lies. I mean, the idea that there are death panels, quote-unquote. The only death panels in America are the insurance companies who refuse to treat people who then go and die because they couldn't get the treatment, not the U.S. government. So to me, this, the scandal of this is, and this really kind of plays into our second point in a moment, we're going to be talking about the need for an informed, enlightened citizenry. If we aren't willing to get up and smell the coffee, we are going to get what we deserve. In fact, in a democracy, people inevitably get better than they deserve because they don't exercise the intelligence and the effort to really become informed. If there's one thing we want to do with this program every month is to help stimulate people, please get informed. The world is not flat, it's round. If somebody tells you that, just tell them, you know what, there's not a lot to talk about. If somebody says to you, it's not clear that President Obama was born in the United States, point out, A, he was born in Hawaii, and B, it's extraordinarily well documented. And anybody wants to talk about it, don't waste your breath. You can't help them. Put your energy and your time 
on the 50 or 60 percent of the American public who you can talk to, who are willing to be rational, who are good people just like you and me, who are willing to go home every day after they've worked at their job, hopefully they've got a job, and, 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 and play with their families or engage in their after-hour activities, their hobbies, and, and, are, and are wanting to preserve something that is rapidly eluding our grasp, the so-called American way of life. It's in great jeopardy, folks. It's, it's hanging by a tender, tender thread. And this, Ronaldo, let, me, let me cut you right there while we're all hanging by that thread. And first, to remind our listeners that if they do want to pose a question, to call in at 347-989-8946 and press the number 1, and we will then call on you. Um, and let's use that hanging on the thread to move into our second topic, uh, because you've already begun to touch on it. And again, the question is, why the United States is at a turning point that requires our president to become a bold leader and for informed citizens to become engaged patriots. Um, and let me just note that uh, here we are talking about the perceptions of what's going on with the presidency this past year. And in fact, as you pointed out in your own Truth Out article recently, um, a lot has actually happened that somehow the media is not picking up on, people are not aware of, and the perception rather than the reality, is unfortunately dominating our political scene right now. Again, and then thanks for that, um, that's, that, that segue, because, see, if people are going to be lazy, you can't really help them. If people aren't going to be willing to be informed, you can't really help them. So people have got to be willing to look at what's beyond the, the flash in the pan of what I call infotainment, which is entertainment loosely disguised as information. And, and by the way, I don't use that term infotainment about just Fox because frankly Fox isn't even infotainment it's just pure it's 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 pure um demagoguery it's 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 simply a mouthpiece for a very articulate but but very wealthy 15% of the population might we use the word propaganda i would use propaganda i mean fox I can't use the word news in conjunction with the name Fox because it's, 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 it's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. It's like jumbo shrimp. It's either a shrimp or it's jumbo. You know, it's, it's, it's like it's an oxymoron. But I'm talking about infotainment and the struggle there with CNN, with ABC, NBC, CBS, which, as everybody must understand, are all dominated by extremely large corporate interests. And those interests, and I'm not, and I'm, I'm a business guy. I love being in business. I think business is, is potentially the, the salvation for the planet. But we, in order for business to do its job, people have to wake up and hold business accountable. And when we do that, we will find that our news media are not peering behind the curtain, for example, of the Obama presidency. Look at all the things that have started to happen. The, the Environmental Protection Agency is starting to protect the environment again. What a concept. The Securities and Exchange Commission is beginning to regulate securities and how they are exchanged. And, and, and the public, because they don't understand this, are, are not aware of when Obama creates the initiatives he has, for example, for the green economy, that's what's going to create the jobs in huge numbers and make us competitive again. There's a great ad running on television right now of an ex-Marine uh, who you see these the tanks blowing up and these Humvees blowing up over in Iraq, and he says every time oil goes up a dollar a barrel, uh, over a billion dollars goes to Abinajad in Iran. So he can fund the the explosive devices that are killing our troops. We've got to create a way to get off of our addiction to oil, and Obama's doing that. The stimulus bill, for example, 
which Obama really laid down early in his presidency, has been extraordinarily effective. It ended the worst recession since the Great Depression and prevented that recession from becoming a depression. That's no small matter. That alone in the annals of history will go down as one of the most important presidential acts of all time. The, the, the way that we are looking at the president's current approach is that we're saying, gee, he doesn't seem to be winning. And it's true. In the arenas which the news media, or so-called news media, likes to focus on, it looks like Obama just gets beat up left and right by the Republicans. And as I said earlier in this call, I think he squandered a lot of his political capital trying, and this is something a point I think Bill Maher made recently, trying to build consensus government rather than getting the result. I think he's changed that. I think people can see behind that now. And when they see behind that, the informed citizenry will support those things which are in the individual's best interest. You know that Warren Buffett said recently Ronaldo, that there, hold a second. there is, in fact, a class war going on? Yeah, no, but let me ask you a question about that. We have, with the administration, we had the most successful come-from-nowhere presidential campaign, masterminded by people like David Axelrod. He picked Rahm Emanuel, who's known for his finesse in getting things through Congress, to be his chief of staff. And you would have thought that they would have great success getting their message out there and that the president would continue on this role that he had during the campaign. Yet that seems, again, public perception, not to be the case. What's gone on wrong with this? Why are these people not appearing to be as effective? Because uh, I think, first, first of all, I think if, if you look at it, the president has been, I think, tremendously underserved by the other members of his cabinet and the other members of the senior Democratic hierarchy. They haven't been very dynamic in arguing the case. He's been sort of left to twist in the breeze by himself and take all the hits. But I think the more fundamental answer is, and it starts, Warren Buffett, I really respect Warren Buffett tremendously. I mean, how can you not respect the most successful investor of all time? I mean, he's the ultimate capitalist. How can you not respect a man who gives away 95% of his wealth to the public, and he does it before he even dies? Certainly 90% of his wealth. How can you not respect a guy who says, from that vantage point, there is a class war going on in America, and my class is winning? And what he means by that is the divide in this country is artificially construed as Democrat-Republican, conservative or liberal. Those are all meaningless labels that are useful to people who want to confuse the great middle class, which is shrinking. The real issue is class warfare in the sense of during the last eight years, the rich got unbelievably richer and the poor got poorer and more of them joined the poor every day. The system got abused. It was brought to its knees globally, and people don't want to take the time to say to themselves, gee, what went wrong there? How were we, the American public, asleep at the wheel? What addiction to materialism did we possess? This plays into our third point today. What addiction to materialism did we possess such that we did not only not see it coming, but we didn't demand once it ended that reforms be put in place that prevent it from happening again? Do you know that today as we sit here, Howard, not one significant financial reform has occurred yet. Not one. And, well, and, and Europe's starting. Europe, Angela Merkel of Germany just the other day said, if you Americans don't fix it, for example, credit default swaps, we will. God bless her, because the rest of the world is starting to get the act. Well, let's bring this down, again, before we end this topic, to a personal level. How is this truly impacting uh, our average listener, and, and what can they do? Um, to well, let me, themselves. Let me give you an example. I mean, this is why I say being informed is so important. Look, 
uh, we, the first country to ever sue the American government in an international World Trade Organization dispute over an agricultural crop was Brazil in 2002. And over a seven-year period, they fought the United States through the WTO and conclusively demonstrated that how we subsidize directly cotton farmers in America is illegal, which it is, internationally, under, under all sorts of treaties we've signed, and that our guarantees of purchases of American cotton on the world market are also illegal. They won a case, and the WTO, after all the appeals were over, more than a year ago, said, you know what, Brazil is getting hurt to the tune of $830 million a year. And so Brazil, two days ago, said, you know what, we're tired of waiting, the Americans, waiting for the Americans to fix this. We're going to adopt a whole series of measures that are anti-competitive measures against Americans because they now have the legal right to do so, and they've done it, they've had the right for over a year and a half. And we are going to tax uh, cotton imports of garments, for example, that come from America. We're going to tax them 100%. We're going to tax cars. We're going to double the tax on American cars, so we won't be selling as many Fords and GMs and Chryslers to Brazil, where Ford and GM are two of the main suppliers currently. So we won't be building as many cars for export because we have an illegal farm policy for cotton, and it's clearly illegal. And by the way, everybody agrees it's illegal. I don't even think cotton farmers believe it's legal. But because of the power of the cotton lobby over the U.S. Congress, we continue to develop, again, this year, another farm bill, which we just did, which makes no economic sense, which is harmful to the American taxpayer, harmful, destructive of the American middle class, and keeps illegal subsidies in place for cotton and many other things. And the result is our economy gets whacked. So Brazil is taking these steps because they realize the American government, Congress, is incapable of acting because there's just too much money in politics. So the American citizen who wants to turn this around, who wants to have more money in his pocket, who wants, wouldn't it be great, because this stopped happening in the 80s, but from 1930, well, I'm going to say 1946 to 1980, one person out of a couple was enough to be able to put a family and their kids through high school and college if they wanted. One person working was able to stay, save up enough so that there was a, a golden age, age of retirement for people at 65. One person was able to hold a job down as a middle-class person and be able to take care of themselves and their family or their friends, and if they weren't married, of their extended relatives, whatever, their partners, their significant others. All this occurred because we had a vibrant, strong, and growing middle class from 1960 to 1946 to 1980. Now, that was also the golden year of the American economy. There's a direct cause and effect. America does better with a growing, vibrant, strong middle class. The only way that it will stay having a middle class, though, quoting Warren Buffett again, is if the middle class realizes there really is a class war going on. And the, and the class that owns 10% of, the, of, of Americans' assets is winning. And what they want is they want more and more and more, and they're willing to see the, more and more middle class people become poor. And that is the way that you kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. So if people want to have more money in their pockets 10 years from today, if they want their kids to be able to go through college, if they want to be able to, uh, to know that they won't be destroyed financially because someone in their family got sick, people have got to get active, and they've got to be willing to see that all of these things that President Obama has been working on are in their direct best interest. Now, is he 100% right? No. I take tremendous exception with his policy on nuclear energy. I think it's totally wrong. I can, I can name a couple of things I think he's totally wrong on, and I've been very vocal against it. Let's start to move on because we, it, it's actually time now for our lightning round. Sure. Our lightning round. But I just don't um, want people to think that I'm, I'm 100% giving him a pass. It's just on the stuff that he is doing great at, which is about 
people need to learn and get engaged. We do not have time any longer for sunshine patriots, to quote the famous dictum of the Revolutionary War. We've got to all be engaged and right away. Go ahead, Howard. Thank you very much. Again, a reminder, if you'd like to make a uh, raise a question, call us in 347-989-8946 and hit the number one. That'll get you through to us. Um, on our lightning round today, again, we want to look at a couple of quick economic insights and comments on some of the major asset classes. And particularly today, we want to talk about oil prices, uh, ways uh, and what's happening with currency trends right now, the implications for each individual and their personal wallet, and ways you can profit from what we think, some of us may think, actually, we have a little bit of disagreement here on inflation, um, how to avoid the pitfalls of inflation, and how to use gold and other tracking indexes. Um, so, Ronaldo, your, your thoughts on these? Okay, sure. Let's take oil first. It's the quickest. Right. So the reason why oil is going to continue to go up is, one, because um, the five major oil companies made $139 billion last year in sales, and they can afford to put even one-tenth of one percent of that or half a percent or one percent into controlling political races, and their lobbying power is enormous. There's no other excuse for the what we spend to try and protect our lifeline to the Middle East. And even the American military, in a special study released by the Pentagon last week, about two or three weeks ago, finally came out in public and said what we've all known for a long time. The number one, the num- this is the Pentagon speaking, the number one threat to America is our dependence on oil. Now, good news, American public is still using about 2 to 3% less oil than it was just two years ago. Bad news, China is increasing its consumption astronomically. As some people might know, China now produces more automobiles every year than the United States. And, and it may also know, too, that China has actually surpassed us in being the world's largest consumer of oil. A Correct. decade ago, they were not even a blip on the radar, which shows you how fast that their world is changing. And at one point, a friend of mine who had actually worked in the oil industry in Vietnam and China and so forth had suggested that if every person in China did nothing more than drive a moped, oil price cons- I'm sorry, oil consumption would triple globally. Yeah, that's how big that population is, and how big their demand is. Put them in an SUV, and you can imagine what's going on. And we see we have the technology in the United States. We actually have the technology that we could replace at least fifty percent of our oil consumption. I think within ten years, Uh, and and we're not doing it. In our book, Freedom from East Oil, we 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 gave a more conservative number, but the truth is, it is low hanging fruit now to replace enormous amounts of it. But the entrenched political power of the oil companies, which under the Citizens United case will increase, uh, keeps us addicted to oil like a heroin addict is addicted to following his junkie. Okay. Given all that, Ronaldo, what's your prediction for oil prices between oil, now and I, the end of the year? Unfortunately, oil is going to continue to go up for the balance of the year, not dramatically. Uh, it'll be modest, but it will go up. Um, it's already, I think, higher than it should be by historical standards. I think two things will push it. One is the demand for the developing world like China, and the second thing, of course, is the, de- the, the debasement of the American currency. So falling dollar, higher consumption, look for oil to keep going up. Uh, my guess is we could easily see $100 a barrel or more by the end of the year. Do you think so? Okay. My personal guess is that I think we're going to see a little bit of a downward lift just before the election and then back up afterwards. Well, that's Howard, you say that because that's historically what they do. That's right. part of the political manipulation. But, right. but at we'll the end of the day, that's just a blip. It's, that's, that's done for public effect and consumption, but basically exactly. Exactly. the trend is un- irreversible. But again, if um, does want to play oil, that's probably the time to do it if that's what they're looking yeah, to do. You know, and, and I don't think, I'm hoping people on this call do things more fundamental than play, that they actually 
look at these things as a way to readjust their living habits. Um, you know, they, they buy more fuel-efficient vehicles. They, <clears throat> they weatherize their houses. They, they, they buy some photovoltaic for the rooftop. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do to gain prospective economic advantage if you know that the price of oil is going up. Don't put your head in the sand like an ostrich. Right. Okay. Um, another one on the lightning round. Gold? You want to do gold? Well, let's go on infl- inflation in general quick, quickly. Your thoughts on that? Sure. Um, we've been saying for more than a year, year and a half now, that, uh, that the inflation will be a um, beginning to rise. It's already starting. We said you start to see it by the second quarter. It's starting to appear. Uh, and then by the second half of the year, it will pick up significantly. The Fed's got a terrible problem. Whatever it does, and it's trying to do some things by unwinding the currency controls now and the, current, and, the, and the liquidity. It's trying to reabsorb some of the liquidity it pumped into the marketplace. And it's, it's raised the discount rate. But at the end of the day, they can't do much with the, un, with the unemployment rate as high as it is. So they're going to have to trade some higher inflation uh, for um, a, a better shot at reducing empl- unemployment statistics. And given that, you're going to see higher inflation for the second half of the year. It's already starting. And my guess is it won't get out of control. But I would definitely expect to see inflation rates this year at least double and perhaps more than double last year. So last year, I think it was about one and a quarter percent, one and something like that. And you're going to see two and a half to four percent inflation. And the, and the run rate of that inflation by December, I think, is going to be um, running above, certainly above four percent, I believe, perhaps as much as above five percent. Well, isn't the Fed's usual goal, sometimes stated, sometimes not, to keep inflation uh, between three and four percent for a healthy economy. Well, they, they they have had, of course, you know, they suspended that because of the recession, right? And they right. They, they tried to drive it to zero practically. Um, but I think they they're going to. I mean, it's a tough. They're riding a tightrope. Uh, but I think people should know to expect. And I'll give you why it's important. Expect at least four to five percent of the run rate on inflation by the end of the year. And I think there's a possibility to be higher. Stay tuned in. Stay listening to this call. Keep reading currents because there's a possibility it could kick above six percent or more. So, uh, well, how does an individual use that information? Well, you'll never get a better time in your life, literally, to buy a home, because the prices are as low as they're going to get, and the cost of money is as cheap as it can get. So, if you get a fixed 30-year loan, um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan, and you can get that today for basically 5.3 percent. Well, if inflation is running at 5 percent or better, that means it's free. <laughs> the interest on that loan over 30 years will be zip. And you're getting a tax And it might credit. be even, and, it'll, and frankly, it'll be less than that because I think inflation will not be held to 5% come 2011. Would you say, Howard? I said, and uh, you're getting a tax write-off for your interest. Of course. I mean, yeah. it's like they're giving, they're giving you it. The government is trying to subsidize your ownership of a house. Take advantage of it, but do it only with fixed, never with adjustable rates. I see all kinds of uh, commercials now and solicitations for adjustable rate mortgages. Don't fall into that trap. It's, it's the devil's money. Go with a fixed 30-year, and you'll be so glad you did. It's one way to keep a roof over your house, and it'll prove to be one of the best investments you ever made. Okay, let's move on to gold, one of our favorite, uh, both favorite topics. Yeah, favorite I mean, topics, and, and, both pro yeah. and con. Well, and, you know, gold's up a little bit because uh, Soros and some of the other folks correctly analyzed, as we have, that that the, the American dollar has been badly debased by the amount of uh, printing of money that's gone on. And as a result, gold, which is seen as an inflation hedge, has risen. Uh, I continue to be a hold. I wouldn't sell it if you got it. I wouldn't buy a whole lot more if you don't. Uh, I think gold's got maybe 10, 15% more that'll go up for the rest of the year. 
Again, a quick interruption yeah. here. Are you talking actual gold, or are you talking gold in other forms, mining well, companies, well, no, yeah, tracking yeah, indexes, or, or what? Yeah, no, okay. So first of all, and, and, and then I want to give people some options besides gold. Actually, you and I can have another conversation about that. No, and go, when people say use the word gold, they're, they're, they mean all three. They mean some people literally go out and buy the physical metal itself. It's called specie. So they go and they buy it from the, one of these places you see on television. Monex is famous for it. They have all these ads. And they literally will sell you gold coins. And then you've got a problem. You've got to pay to storm. So in a very, relatively low inflation area of time, like we're in now, the cost of storing it and insuring it, frankly, it's not a good buy. The second type of way you can buy it is you can buy a gold mining stock. So if the value of gold goes up, then the companies who are well-run that take the gold out of the ground – theoretically will have more value because what they're selling is worth more. A third way you can do it is you can do what are called tracking indexes, as you mentioned, which basically are looking at the stocks of a bunch of companies that do gold. Or you can actually do it in, in, in there are commodity indexes where you can play options against gold. So there's lots of ways to play gold. Uh, the problem I have with gold is this. We're not going right now, in the next three months certainly, and probably not for the rest of this year, we're not going into a hyperinflation condition or high inflation condition. We're not going into a highly unstable situation right away. So gold will not be that attractive except for the reduction of the American dollar in value. And there's a better way to deal with that than buying gold because you can do that without the associated costs of gold. So what I would say to people is if you want gold as an inflation hedge today, I think that people ought to be looking at commodity indexes. I mean, Howard, why don't you, why don't you explain to commodity indexes to people? I think they would like to know about it. Well, I think just like you have ETFs and, and mutual funds. Hey, try to explain ETF. Those are exchange-traded funds. They're basically another way of buying stock indexes um, that also trade like stocks. They're similar to mutual funds, but in how you purchase and how you use them, they're different. Too complicated to get into in this call, the distinctions. But um, you can purchase various indexes on the exchanges, that track, for example, agricultural products worldwide or commodity prices worldwide, um, so that if there is inflation, the value of these indexes tends to go up. Um, I use them frequently in small amounts with appropriate clients uh, as a way of participating in some other alternate form of investment that is not directly uh, linked to the stock market or the fixed income market. It's an and, and let's, let's just let's, let me explain something about that because I think that's really a key point. See, when you do when you do, when you're betting on commodities, in effect, when you're buying a commodity index, what you're saying is you think economic activity globally is going to go up. Well, that's that's the academy's position. Why is that reflected in commodities? Because if economic activity rises, the stuff that we use to make stuff—copper, lead, zinc, nickel, um, et cetera, et cetera—all trees for lumber. All these things tend to go up in value as more demand is created for more production, for higher rates of GNP. So if you believe, as the Academy does, that the economy is going to be growing globally for at least the next 12 months, because that's as far out as we project, then you would want to have some commodities if you were trying to hedge against inflation, because they will rise in value at or faster than the rate of inflation. And gold, you see, is at most a protection against rapid inflation, or in the situation where people are in fear, which we went through in the Great Recession we just came out of. Well, where fear is not the primary motivator and where inflation is not that high, gold's not a good idea. Will it go up 10, 11, 12% more, 15, maybe, but it's not worth the trouble to buy it. Commodities in the same period of time will do as well or better. 
are an inflation hedge, which works better because they're always priced in current dollars. And as the dollar is depreciated in value, commodities will go up in prices because they're set by world markets. So also, that's who, as we've seen, the enormous growth of, of China, Brazil, Russia, India. Um, as these economies grow, there's an enormous amount of money that is pumped into the consumer economy in these countries. We may be slowing down, but uh, they're expanding. Well, as Australia, they expand, Australia never went through a recession because China keeps buying so many commodities. Right. right. Australia never had a recession. They just kept pumping away. In fact, they have the opposite problem. They're, they're trying to damp down the economy there for the last three, four months. So I think what, the reason why we, I, I wanted you to, to, to address that today, Howard, is I think that people might want to ask us questions about these kinds of vehicles because as you go through life and you start to accumulate a 401K or you start to accumulate a little money in your savings account, you want to have a way to protect it against the vicissitudes of everyday ups and downs in the marketplace. And, and most people are not equipped to know what the options are besides buying or selling a stock, buying or selling gold. And I don't want to take people off into areas which are too sophisticated for them, but I wanted to expose them in this call today to some of the sophistication that's available to you. And if people start asking us more questions about these things, we'll tell you how you can, with very limited resources, protect yourself and your nest egg against challenging times or make it grow faster in good times. Exactly. What else in the lightning round? What, what else should we hit well, today? Well, that, that's it on the lightning round. Um, we're actually time to move on to our last topic. And again, okay. one last reminder, if you want to raise a question, dial into the call, 347-989-8946, um, and press the number one, and we will, again, see you on the queue. Um, our final topic for today uh, is how you can find a way to bring your body and soul to work while, at the same time, business leaders and consumers begin to make business a tool for Excuse me for social transformation. Well, it, the topic got into our agenda. By the way, it's funny. I, I should mention to people when we did the the list of topics for this show, we actually did not know that um, health care reform would be where it is. We didn't know that, that that Obama would be issuing these interesting little documents I referred to earlier. So it was kind of fun that it came out just yesterday, and we designed this agenda probably two three weeks ago. In the same vein, uh, we knew, though, sometimes we know ahead of time, and, and we heard from people that they thought maybe maybe we were doing just too much of hard economics on this call. Maybe what we should do is take a broader view of what's really important in the World Business Academy world. And in our most recent issue, February 18th issue of Connections, which all of you get, uh, it's our free publication, we, we covered a really interesting book by a man named Will Murray. Uh, and we'll probably have Will on this program at some point. Uh, the book's called Save the World and Still Be Home for Dinner. And, and what he's talking about is he's explaining how to work, live, and love in extraordinary ways by finding a work-life harmony rather than seeing your work and your life as in conflict. So it's a, a very interesting book, and, and we started getting some comments from people. You know, it would be fun to hear, how can I really love what I do and do what I love? Because at the end of the day, when as a recession ends and people are less fearful of being able to find the job that they love, they start asking, you know, is this really all there is? Am I going to be working in Solomon's Mines? Am I a wage slave? Or can I actually do something I really, really love? And how do I know whether I'm just looking and saying the grass is greener or am I really doing something thoughtful and smart and insightful? So I, I, I want to read to people. There's, there, there, I'm just going to read these 12 um, uh questions, basically, areas of, 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 of investigation for you so that you can see or evaluate 
Whether you're headed in the right career direction or maybe you want to adjust, here are the questions. See how they fit for you and then see what it would mean if you really bought, brought your body, your mind, and your spirit to work every day. How would that feel? By the way, I think it would be great for your health. So the first question is intrinsic enjoyment. Would I do this work without pay? Is the inner payoff so direct that the process so engaging that I would, I'd have to be told to stop because I'd like doing it so much? Second one, energy gain. Am I exhausted by my work or energized by it? Third one, soul compatibility. Does my work reflect the longings of my soul? Is it something I feel called to do? Or would I rather secretly be doing something else? Fourth one, true choice. Would I choose to do this work if no one cared? If it didn't make anyone proud or create any social status, would it still be my choice? Would I choose to do it simply because I want to do it? Fifth, success without strain. Does success in my chosen area come relatively easily to me? Or am I fighting upstream? Six, do I have a desire for mastery? Am I always naturally seeking to improve what I do, and do I have a chance to gain that mastery with what I'm doing today? Seven, growth. Is my work an avenue to new knowledge, new skills, new experiences, or do I feel like every day I'm going into a cubicle and it's, a, it's, it's almost like a caricature of a cartoon figure? Like, uh, what's that name? Uh, Howard Dil- uh, Dil- What's that cartoon character? Dilbert. Dilbert, right. Or is it like Dilbert? Mm-hmm. Um, next, eight. What matters to me? Do I personally think and feel this work is important? Or is there something I could do where I could make a difference? Number nine, does it matter to others? Does what I do actually affect other people in ways that I feel good about? Does it make a positive difference? Am I doing it? Because I can make a difference. Number ten, best opportunity. Does my work permit me to distinguish myself in such a way that I become a virtual category of one, that I'm unique, indisposable, and in demand? Number 11, compensation. You know, if I were not paid as much as I'm paid, would I still be doing this? Or is why I'm doing this because it pays me more than I'm probably going to get if I go do what I love? And the truth is, by the way, and this is one of the great truths, it's a universal law. You can't fight it. If you do what you love, the money will follow. That's Marcia Sinatar, and she's right. Conversely, if you do something you don't love because you think you can get a few extra bucks for it, the amount of stress you will cause yourself and ill health is almost incalculable. Last but not least, number 12. Do I experience collaboration versus flying solo? Do I, am I collaborating with my fellow workers and feeling good about being on a winning team or my team? Or am I really feeling like I'm a solo player in an alien world. So those are 12 questions you can ask yourself. And you can say, you know, if I were really putting my work values and my life values and my service values all to common purpose, I would want to follow that maxim of do good and thereby doing, doing, doing good by having done well. So I, I think that where I'd like to leave to people today is I'd like to ask them to think about their work-life balance um, whether you buy Will Mari's book or not, and I think it's excellent, by the way. Again, the name of that book, and it was covered in connections, is uh, Save the World and Still Be Home for Dinner. Whether you want to read it from Will Mari or just dwell on it yourself, one of the great questions of all time is, am I happy doing this? And if you're afraid to ask the question, that's proof positive that you really need to. So I just wanted to bring that element in because people sometimes think these calls are just about economic data, 
and economic consequences. And in fact, we try to aim them so that every listener will benefit financially from them. But we also want people to do another kind of benefit for themselves. We want them to have a work-life benefit. I had the good fortune of speaking to someone just yesterday, uh, two days ago, who is the wife of uh, a gentleman I work with. And I explained to her, because she was pleased with what I was doing with her husband in a particular company, and I said, well, I'm glad you like that, because in fact, what will happen if this works the way it seems to be working is you will see a different guy at home, not just because he's different at work. You'll see a different guy at home, not just because he has less pressure, but you'll see a different guy at home because if he's going through work with balance, he brings that balance home. If he is working in a way that's schizophrenic, meaning he's living one life at home and a different life in the workplace, there's no question that will ricochet back into every key relationship in his life. His family, his friends will all pay the penalty with him. And I think it's really important that we stop and realize that. And and the last thing I'll say on this topic is, you know, people don't realize how blessed we all are. They really don't. And the good news is we will, in fact, be adequately supported at whatever we do in the world that we love. It may not be our picture. We may not be billionaires. But, hey, you know what? You don't have to be to be happy. In fact, it's probably a little easier to be happy if you're not a billionaire than if you are. But what we can do, what we all can do is we can say, gosh, I have a chance today to recreate the rest of my life. And if I'm going to do that and i only got one life, how would I recreate it? And is the place I go to work where I'd be doing it? And if not, start looking into where it would be so that your work, your life, your love, all are co-intertwined like the strands of a rope that pulls you through your lifetime with more and more success and happiness at each stage. Well, Ronaldo, does Will have any practical suggestions? I mean, understand that first, asking oneself those questions uh, almost accords with what Socrates said to know thyself, know where your beginning point is. But if you're answering no to a lot of those questions and yes to some, how do you get to all yeses? Well, what first can of all, people me, do? Yeah, well, first of all, let me tell you who Will is. Will, Will was the former CEO and president of, 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 of Franklin Covey, the, the executive training firm. Will's a very, very, very famous corporate trainer. His, his, his career is based upon providing the answers to those, uh, the, the, the practical answers to those questions. And, and the book is full of them. And um, I think I mean, it, it would be a disservice to try and, 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 and go through too many of them in this call because it's, it, it's too unique to each individual person. And then the book has got more in it than I could possibly do justice to it in the few minutes I have remaining. I think it's more important from Will's point of view, and I echo this, to get people thinking that they, and, and understanding and appreciating that they actually have choices and that those choices give them the opportunity to do well for themselves and their loved ones and to be happier in the process. And what I think the message I'm trying to put out is if you think you can put up with what you're doing. You're right and you're wrong. Because just from the point of health alone, it will get you. Internalized stress is the number one killer in America. It manifests itself as heart attacks. It manifests itself as all sorts of immune system problems. Uh, When you're under stress, your system is really, really fighting off everything. And when you start to release that stress, your health improves, your relationships improve. Usually, your financial picture improves. 
And if it doesn't improve, it's because you weren't meant to have that next piece of chocolate cake because then your health would keep improving. <laughs> so I think I think it's really it's more about that. It's, it's more about getting a different sense of how to be in business and at the same time not lose your humanity. In fact, recognize it's the human that comes to work every day. Okay, we're down to our last four minutes of the call today. Uh, so I'm going to ask you for any last-minute thoughts as well as a reminder, this is your last opportunity for you out there in the audience to uh, raise a question. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm hoping, uh, Howard, that people know when we say to raise a question that, that all the questions that they want to ask are fair game. It, it's, there's no such thing as a bad question, ever. And um, the idea of having questions or giving people a chance to ask questions is so that we can focus precisely on whatever it is that is their next question, particularly if it's a financial issue. Uh, you know, we've we've been blessed with people who've called us in these in these these shows with you know questions about home mortgages they're negotiating, buildings they're buying and selling. Um, all manner of questions come up in this call, and we welcome them all. I would like to remind our audience too that if you have questions or topics you'd like to see us cover, uh, to send a note to the academy. And we will definitely consider adding those into uh, one of our future calls. It's another way that we uh, try to improve the value of what you're hearing. Yeah, and, and, and thanks for saying that, Howard, because, you know, the real, we're doing this because we want to be of service. And we want people to make more money. If, 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 if and people actually, we do have another call popping up. Okay. So, so let, me, let me cue this one in. And, uh, okay, this is caller 11111. Um, if I can... Flip this open. You're now on. You're open. Is this me? That is you. If you are one 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 one. I don't know what number I am, but I do have a question. And, and um, who are we speaking with? Who? This is me. my name is Lisa Smith. Okay, Lisa. And I work in a healthcare clinic. I have my own practice. But um, my question has to do with what um, what might we do individually? other than our everyday choices and how we spend money, to address the problem of corporate ownership of the of Congress, for instance, which seems to affect everything that we've been talking about. Well, that's, a, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that, Lisa. First of all, do you know Senator Leahy is Patrick Leahy of Vermont? Yes. Okay, so he sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee. He sent out a bulletin one or two days ago in which he said, we just had the first ever history in history, a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on how to get around the perfidy of the Citizens United case that came out of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Because if we do not, if we do not address what they've done in that case, we will lose the republic. I'm telling you, it's that serious. It, this is the second worst decision in the whole time. Probably it's as bad as Dred Scott, which was the other bad decision. I've been sick about that decision ever since it happened. Well, and you should be. In fact, so one of the things we would say is sign up and show up. Send an email to Senator Lay's office telling him you want to be involved. Um, I know People for the American Way is uh, putting together a petition. I know that Congressman Grayson, Alan Grayson of Florida, yeah, has introduced I'm five Florida. bills. I think that what, what you know that expression "sunshine patriots" what it meant. It was adopted well, when it's good, when it's easy. I guess. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and it was a reference to Valley Forge. It's like you know, it wasn't easy to be at Valley Forge. It was darn difficult. Had some folks not stuck it out there with Washington, we'd all be speaking the King's English right now. Yeah. There are times when these are the times that try men's souls, quote unquote. 
and, and we are living in times that try men's and women's souls. And what we need to do is say, if we don't want the outcome, which is coming, we have got to get engaged. It's, we're not at liberty any longer to watch what they are doing back in Washington and criticize them. We now have to, we have to become an informed, engaged, and aroused citizenry. We must take control of our democracy. H.L. Mencken, the famous humorist, and I referred to him earlier today without quoting him, but what he said basically is, in a democracy, the people inevitably get better than they deserve. Why? Because they don't take the action that they need to take in order for the democracy to work for them. We, those of us who are members of the middle class, and, and, and everybody, everybody's not in the top 10%, represents the voting block, the activist block that has not awakened. And I think from a series of materialistic reasons, we got used to our baubles. We got used to having a shinier car every year, not thinking about where that car ended up. We got used to buying new carpets and not realizing where that ended up. We got used to driving our cars bigger and bigger and not thinking about the implications for the importation of foreign oil and what it did to our budget, what it did to our balance of payments, and what it did to our military. We didn't look at those things because we were too busy consuming, consuming, consuming. And it's time for us to say, you know what? We're now past that point. It's the wake, we got the wake-up call. And when you get the wake-up call, you have no choice. You either wake up or the patient dies. And you're in the healthcare industry. You know from first-hand experience, the American Medical Association is, at, is asking desperately for reform. They want this bill passed. You know that the, um, that the uh, most healthcare providers want healthcare reform because the dealing with the insurance companies is totally unsustainable, and they know that. It's also a crazy overlay on our system. They know that we could provide the same or better care for at least 30% less than we're doing it now, and I think that's just the opening round. They know, that, let me finish, they know that Germany pays 40% less for every drug they consume than we pay for it in America, even when the drugs are made in America. 40% less. Because their government doesn't let the healthcare system rob German citizens. We have let so much money into politics that we allow our public to literally be robbed. So, Lisa, thank you for asking that question. And get aroused and sign up to help out. Ronaldo, we're actually a couple of minutes over, and it is time to wrap up the call. Any last-minute uh, thoughts before we conclude this conversation? Just one, and that is, uh, even if you listened today and didn't have a question, please think of what your question would, would be. What can we do to help you help yourself and others like you? That's what we're here for. We, we believe at the World Business Academy that we have a responsibility to the whole of society. So that's you, that's me, that's all of us together. And if you have a suggestion for how this call could be more relevant for you, for how we could do this in a way that would be more useful, please don't hesitate. We're really easy to find, worldbusiness.org. Okay, with that, I thank you all for listening, and hopefully you'll join us again next month on the second Thursday of the month for our next call. Again, for Ronaldo and myself, good day and have a wonderful week. Thank Bye -bye. you very much. Bye-bye.